We're getting really near the end of our series in Galatians, no other gospel. We've got, including today, probably two more after that. I know I change every week, but um, it's kind of hard to figure out sometimes how far to go and where to stop, uh, but I think I've got it kind of charted out now, so probably three, including today. Um, last Sunday, we looked at Paul's second set of instructions for how to keep in step with the Spirit when restoring a sinning brother or sister. We looked at chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. And then this morning, we are going to move into the last section. The remaining verses are the last section uh, where Paul gives a few final warnings or exhortations. And uh, it's a really, really, really good last section, a great way to close out an epistle or letter. Um, in his first final warning, which is what we'll look at today, he uses a farming metaphor to illustrate a universal truth. Uh, farmers, they sow seeds, right? Sowing is planting. They, they sow seeds in a field in hopes of uh, reaping a good crop so they can, what, feed their families, so they can sell their, you know, their crops at the local markets and these sorts of things so they can make a living. And in a similar way, every person is like a farmer in that we all sow in word and in deed, and we will all reap whatever our words are putting out there, whatever our deeds are. In other words, we, whatever we speak and whatever we do, it's going to come back to us, sowing and reaping. If we sow sinful corruption, we're going to reap a harvest of sinful corruption. If we sow righteousness, we will sow a harvest of righteousness. Now, some folks call this whole idea and concept, and I think most people affirm it as a reality, but some people just call it karma. Karma. Not credit karma, but just karma. That's what some people call it. But karma is a Buddhist tradition, and Buddhism, with all due respect, is a false religion. So it's not wise really to call this phenomenon, reality, karma. The concept of being paid back for what we say and do for sowing and reaping is actually rooted in Scripture. It's rooted in your Bibles. It is actually a divine law that pretty much governs the entire universe. In other words, the whole universe operates in this sowing and reaping way by God's design. And I tell you, of all the books in the Bible, one of them demonstrates this better than any other, and that's the book of Job, right? That would be the book of Job because we studied 20 chapters of sowing and reaping. It illustrates it really perfectly. The main message of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, you know, the friends of Job, their main message to their suffering friend was God is paying you back for what you've done. You are reaping what you've sown. Repent. Is that not their main message? 
And they were absolutely wrong about Job because he was actually a righteous man, but they were not wrong about sowing and reaping. They were not wrong about how the universe works in God's economy. Even the ancient Greeks recognized that there was a standard of right and wrong, a basic kind of moral sowing and reaping. According to their mythology, the goddess Nemesis sought out and punished every person who became inordinately proud and arrogant. She essentially became, if you became prideful, Nemesis became your Nemesis. No matter how much this sinfully prideful person tried to evade Nemesis, she always found her victims and executed her sentence. Now, in some ways, that's, that's mythology. It's a false religion as well, but the reality of sowing and reaping and getting what you're doing is truth. In fact, uh, Numbers 32.23, what the Greeks believe kind of sounds like Numbers 32.23. Your sin will find you out. You engage in sin, it's going to come back around and get you. And you just stop for just a brief nanosecond and think about our culture and society and world that doesn't even recognize, it's not even willing to recognize the fact that it's sinful. Just stacking up sin and judgment. But at some point, the world and everyone in it will reap what they've sown. It always comes around. Sin will find us out. And I think a great many people understand that this is the way that things work. A lot of people know this. A lot of people understand this, especially Americans. Most people affirm a type of sowing and reaping, a type of karma, which is not the best title, or whatever they choose to call it. If you think about it, any society that utilizes a merit system has... It, it's based on a sowing and reaping kind of setup, isn't it? That's what a merit system is. If you do well, you will receive well. If you're a sluggard and lazy, you know, you're not even going to be able to put food on your table. Unless, of course, you live in America. Every, any system that's, that's based on merit is a sowing and reaping kind of system. We're all familiar with the idiom or phrase, hard work pays off, right? And that's true, isn't it? That's sowing and reaping. Hard work pays off. Now, Paul's farming metaphor and first final warning is set in the same context as the previous section. He's still dealing with the restoration of a sinning brother or sister. But this time, he issues a strong warning to any brother or sister who is being gently called out or corrected or restored by a faithful brother. He's warning anyone who is in sin who's corrected. He's warning them to make sure that they confess and repent when they're called out. Why is that? Because of sowing and reaping. Look, if you're involved in some kind of sin and a brother or sister comes and gently you know, corrects you on that and is seeking to restore you, it is imperative that you listen and humble yourself and repent. Why? Sowing and reaping is in place. It's happening even among God's people. That's the clear warning in the text. But we'll take a magnified sort of 
microscopic look at it. We'll look at it very closely here, or magnifying look. Please take your Bibles and turn to Galatians 6. 7 through 10 is our text. This will be a four-point sermon. As usual, I've got to give you some kind of letter or number, and I'm going to give you some ease. Ease. I'm not going to make it easy on you. I'm just going to give you some ease. I'd like to pray and ask for God's help before we get to work. Father, as we humble ourselves, open our minds and ears, ears and minds and hearts to the truth of sowing and reaping. Help us to understand how things work and to also understand that we have a rescuer named Jesus. Make this truth come through clearly today. Warn us from the text. Encourage us from the text. Give us the examples and all the things that are here. We pray that you're glorified during this time. We commit ourselves to you and to this teaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at the first E. This is real simple. This would be the exhortation. Verse 7. Paul, this is like the very next thing that he says after the previous text. He says now, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The first thing Paul does is exhort any misguided Galatians that might have been in these churches, any misguided Galatians in these churches, he's exhorting them to, to watch out for deception and to make sure that they are not deceived by others. Why is that? Because many people in these churches had become deceived by the Judaizers. They, it says uh, they had been led astray or, what does it say, they had become bewitched. So when the Judaizers came into these churches with their false gospel, there were people that jumped on the bandwagon. There were believers who were deceived. They used to believe that we were justified by faith alone. But once the Judaizers got a hold of them, they started to believe that you're justified by believing in Jesus and by obeying as much of the law as you can and just by works and doing things. That's how you'll be justified and accepted by God. This is what some of them unfortunately had become deceived upon and kind of fell into. They were thinking that works were necessary for justification. And I think that's a, a clear warning or exhortation here. Don't be deceived. But I think the strongest implication of Paul's exhortation here seems to be that misled believers were actually deceiving themselves. Those who were deceived, they were also deceiving themselves into thinking that God somehow doesn't take sin seriously, especially when it comes to his children. Maybe some of them had a kind of antinomian or hyper-grace view, like, well, you know, yeah, I know I'm, I, I'm, I'm kind of partnering now with the Judaizers who are, who are teaching a false gospel, but I'm kind of partnering with them. I know what I do really matters, and I'm not ultimately concerned. I mean, they have authority as teachers. I'm not ultimately concerned about how this is sinful or what God's going to do about it. So they were deceived by the Judaizers, and then they were deceiving themselves in justifying their actions by saying, God's not going to do anything to us. We've got grace. That's what Paul is dealing with here. And the two sins that Paul points to the most in this epistle are 
Legalism, right? That's the substitution of man's work for the work of Christ. That's essentially adding works to justification. And then the second sin that's highlighted here is antinomianism. That would be the use of grace or gospel freedom for fleshly opportunities and just excusing sin. Well, I'm a Christian, I can, and I have grace. I can just do whatever I want. It doesn't make any kind of difference. That's antinomianism. Or they were just stacking a bunch of requirements on top of the gospel. Those are the two major sins in these churches. And unfortunately, some of these believers in these Galatian churches had fallen victim to the deception and were now self-deceived and deceiving themselves into thinking it's no big deal. That's really what our flesh aims to do. The conceit of our flesh keeps us thinking that it's no big deal. God doesn't take sin seriously. He doesn't take sin seriously. Every time you see one of those, you know how serious God takes sin. Every time you look at a cross, oh, He doesn't take it seriously, does He? No. Are we to think that because we're covered by grace and in Christ that He doesn't take sin seriously within the church? Among his people, in my mind, it would seem that he would take it more serious by those who are blood-bought than those who aren't. But what happens is we, you know, oh, we've got the grace and we're okay. And, and you know, we don't have to worry about sowing and reaping anymore because, you know, Christ reaped all our sin on the cross and all the judgment. And we, we just don't have to worry about it. And that's the deception that's going around in these churches here. And that deception is going around in churches today. Some of these Galatians were practicing either legalism or antinomianism, and they were not taking their sins or God seriously. MacArthur said, when believers fail to acknowledge the reality or seriousness of sin in their lives, their hearts are deceived and God is being mocked. Is that not what the text says? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. When, when a believer doesn't take sin seriously, when they err on the side of grace or Christ or anything else, when they don't take it serious, we are mocking God. It's a mocking of God. And that Greek word is, is interesting for mocked. It's mukarizo, and it means to treat with contempt or to turn up one's nose. Well, I just don't think that sin is all that serious. You turn your nose up. That's how you're mocking God if you don't take sin seriously. Paul is essentially saying if you think God does not take legalism or antinomianism or any sin seriously, you are self-deceived and you are treating Him with contempt because He takes all sin seriously. What you sow, you will reap. And really what he's saying here is if a spiritual brother or sister gently corrects you, do not reject them. Repent and be restored. You can see how the exhortation here is aimed at the brothers or sisters who are sinning who need to repent. And he's warning them, if you don't, you're going to reap what you've been sowing here. That's the immediate context. Of course, it has a broader meaning because sowing and reaping applies to the whole universe. But it has a specific meaning as well. That's his exhortation. Let's move to the second E. This is the explanation, verse 8. He goes on to say, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So to avoid any confusion here, Paul takes a brief moment to explain what he means by sowing and reaping. 
You know, he, he, he feels that it's not enough just to, you know, to point out the obvious here. He feels like with a Greek audience, he probably needs to unpack this a little bit for them and give them some kind of explanation. And he tells the Galatians that if a person sows to their flesh, they are going to reap corruption or fleshly corruption. Now, how do we sow to the flesh? How is this done? Right? Because I always aim to make these messages in the Word of God as practical and simple as possible. And the Word of God is very complex in places, but it's also very simple. And in this text, it's very simple. How do we sow to our own flesh? We sow to our own flesh when we pander to our flesh rather than let the Spirit subdue it. You see, the believer, the true believer, has this Holy Spirit in him or her, and that Spirit is guiding that person and leading that person and convicting that person. And what happens? You sow to the flesh when the flesh rises up in temptation and you say no to the Spirit who's trying to lead you in the right direction. You say no to the Spirit and you submit yourself to your flesh. That's what it means to sow to the flesh. We sow to the flesh, our own flesh, when we submit to our own fleshly passions, our own fleshly lusts, instead of overcoming them in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. A couple of examples. If a believer is tempted by his flesh to become angry and he gives in to that anger, he has sown to his flesh, hallelujah, amen, I've done this. Who hasn't done this? You give in to anger, you're sowing to fleshly anger. You're sowing to your flesh. And this happens to me usually while I'm driving. But Lord, it was that Nimrod that doesn't know how to use a signal. If a believer is tempted by his flesh to engage in sexual immorality, right? Well, you know, I've got a girlfriend and we're going to get married someday, but I think we should just go ahead and lay together and do these sorts of things. That's sexual immorality. When he gives in to that lustful, fleshly, sexually immoral temptation, when he gives in to it and follows through with it, he is sowing to his flesh. If a believer is tempted by their flesh to get drunk or to get high, and he gives in to it, she gives in to it, they are sowing to their flesh. If a believer knows that he or she must wait on the Lord for a particular situation and their flesh tempts them to go ahead and give it a go, go ahead and give it a try, go ahead and try to make things happen, and they give in to that fleshly temptation, they are sowing to their flesh, right? They're not walking by faith. They're walking by flesh. They're sowing to the flesh. Who comes to mind? Abraham and Hagar didn't want to wait on that promised child and went ahead and got with another woman and produced a child that turned out not to be the promised child. And that child's progeny and everyone who came after that child turned out to be the mortal enemy of all Israel. Still going today. Abraham sowed to his flesh. We sow to the flesh when we don't wait on the Lord on things. Anytime we give in to temptation, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time. Every time. Now, did Paul have a particular type of sowing to the flesh in mind here? You know, did he have something more specific in mind? Absolutely. He was undoubtedly thinking of and referring to works of the law for justification. Work 
is the result of our physical flesh, right? We have to act in, and I'm not talking about like per se the sinful flesh per se. I'm just talking about you have to use your flesh and your body to do work. Even if you're like me and sit at a desk, I, I have to use my mind and I have to use my fingers as I type and there, my, my, my flesh and my, and my body and my, my physicality, uh, physiology is involved in the work. Work is the result of our physical flesh. Understand that firstly. We have to use our flesh to produce work, especially when you're a tradesman or in any sort of field that requires any kind of manual labor. You really know it there. Any person who seeks to be justified by the law will have to engage their flesh, will have to perform in the flesh, will have to sacrifice aspects of their flesh, right? You think of, of some of the law that, that, that the Judaizers were claiming uh, was required of these Christians, like the fleshly act of circumcision or the dietary restrictions or all of the feasts and festivals that they had to go to and all these things. Basically, to obey the law, you have to engage your, yes, of course, your mind, but you have to engage your flesh. There are physical requirements that you have to physically do. Paul calls the law spiritual in Romans 7.14, and, and it's undoubtedly spiritual. I mean, it came from God, who is spirit, but the law is also a flesh game, in a sense, because it has to be physically obeyed. We have to move, we have to work, we have to obey, we have to avoid lots of stuff and some really good stuff like bacon and lobster. This is why I'd never be a good Jew. Bacon has a hold on me, Lord. I don't know what you want me to do. Lobster too, but I get it once every 10 years or so. When a person performs works of the law for justification... He or she is working in their flesh. They are sowing to their flesh. Why? To procure justification. And Paul says when a believer sows to their flesh like this, he or she will reap corruption. Isn't that amazing that if you... You know, if, if, if you, you're living the type of life where you think that you've got to believe in Jesus and also obey a whole bunch of stuff, really what you're about is sowing to your flesh. Being religious is sowing to the flesh. It really is. It literally is. And that's exactly what Paul is warning about here. And he's saying, look, if you depart from justification by faith alone and turn it into a works game, you're sowing to your flesh, and you are going to reap fleshly corruption. You can actually get yourself in trouble as a Christian by, by trying to obey God's law all the time because you think that that's somehow going to justify you, that you're not the right kind of Christian unless you try to go back and obey all the commandments. You're of the flesh. You're sowing to your flesh. That's what Paul is saying. The Greek word for corruption is interesting. It is, you have to, you have to like blow first. It's phthora, phthora. Some of these Greek words are like, I'm not even going to try that one. Phthora. And you know what it means? You know what it means to reap corruption? It means to degenerate. It means to go from better to worse. That's the exact meaning, the precise meaning here in this text. That's what it means to reap corruption. It means to go from better to worse. It means to degenerate. 
Now, Paul's use of this Greek noun tells us that he was referring to the quality of a believer's life. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the quality of a believer's life. If a believer sows to his or her flesh for justification or any other reason, their life and walk will degenerate and go from better to worse. That is the exact teaching of this text. You just think about Paul's logic here, and this is Holy Spirit logic coming through him, right? Because the word is divinely inspired. But just think about his logic here. As believers, do we not experience great freedom in Christ and knowing that our salvation is based not on what we do or don't do, but that we understand that it is based entirely upon the merit of Christ? Isn't that the most liberating truth in the whole universe? To know that, that it's all in Christ and, and what's required of us is, is simple faith in Him and then everything that He accomplished in salvation is attributed to us. All the blessings of Scripture being cleansed and washed and made righteous and, and having an inheritance in heaven. Isn't it amazing knowing that it's not based on what we do and it's based entirely upon what He did on the cross? Isn't that... That's gospel freedom. That's the most amazing... That's the good news of the gospel. It's liberating and even awe-inspiring to know that we are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ and that we are fully justified before God by faith in Christ. That is, that is the gospel in a nutshell, and that's what makes it such good news. Christianity is not a works-based religion. It is based on faith in a Savior. This Reality and the knowledge of these things, it fills our lives with joy and, and hope and peace and a sense of security and identity and purpose and all these wonderful things. We, do, we just know that it's all in Christ, and if we aim ourselves at Him, we've got everything He did. That is, if, if Christianity is a religion at all, it is the most free religion in the whole world. It's total freedom. I don't have to work for my justification. It's not like Roman Catholicism where it's part your work and part faith in Christ. No offense to you if you're an ex-Roman Catholic, but that's the system. Roman Catholicism is a later version of the Judaism that these Judaizers were perpetuating. It's not based on the work of Christ in Roman Catholicism. It's based on His work and on what you do. But in true biblical Christianity, it's entirely based upon Christ, and that's what makes it absolutely awesome and joyful and peaceful and liberating. And yet, what would happen if we were to suddenly learn that Jesus was only joking while dying on the cross when He said, it is finished? John 19.30. It's... Finished. Psych. What would happen if we were to learn this and this was some kind of reality and, and now we realize it's up to us to earn the other half of our justification by obeying 613 laws in the Old Testament? Would that put a damper on your Christian faith? Can you imagine? Would... Would knowing that increase the quality of the Christian life? Or would it degenerate the quality of the Christian life? It would degenerate it. It would go from better to worse overnight. 
In fact, I know I'd just flat out give up because I know that I'm not going to be able to obey 613 laws. I can't even obey the speed limit. How am I going to obey 613 laws in the Old Testament? How are you going to do this? I can't even imagine. I would lose all hope, and I would probably just disappear into the mountains. The Christian life is, is joyful and hopeful and, and peaceful because Jesus paid it all. He wasn't joking when he said it is finished. He was declaring to all creation that the final atonement had been made and that the sacrificial system, which was a means to justify in a sense temporarily, he was saying, by saying it is finished, he was saying that system is over. The old covenant is over. I'm ushering in the new covenant. He was not joking or meddling or doing anything. He was declaring it's done. It's done. It's final. It's complete in me. My work is where it's complete. The Christian life is joyful, hopeful, and peaceful because we are justified by faith alone, not by what we do. There is nothing for us to earn. Jesus earned everything we need for eternal life. And when we trust in Him, all that He earned is credited to us. If a believer sows to his or her flesh through works of the law for justification, you know, the false gospel of the Judaizers, what's going to happen to them? Do they become super Christians? No, they are going to reap corruption. The quality of their Christian life will degenerate, going from better to worse. That's what happens to us when we start adding works of the law to our lives. Things don't get better, they get worse. Some people just think, and they call themselves Christians, they think, well, the more I obey God's law, the better off I'm going to be, and, and, and I'm, He's going to just give me more favor and be happier with me and unleash His blessings on me. He might unleash His discipline on you because you've deviated away from the gospel. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't obey God's law. We do it, but not for justification. We do it because we're justified. Because we can and because we want to, but not because we're trying to get something from God. If a believer sows to his or her flesh through works of the law for justification, they're going to reap corruption. The quality of their life is, is going to go down. It's going to be depleted. It's going to degenerate. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. And in a more universal sense, if a believer sows to his or her flesh in other ways, like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, drunken parties. You know, all the works of the flesh that Paul identifies in the previous chapter, chapter 5, verses 19 to 21a. What's going to happen if a believer gives themselves over to those things and sows to those things? They're going to reap corruption. The quality of his or her Christian life is going to degenerate and go from better to worse. Sin doesn't make our Christian experience or walk or life better. It makes it worse. Sin makes everything worse because the wages of it is death. Romans 6.23. Now, on the other hand, Paul juxtaposes here. On the other hand, a believer that who sows to the Spirit shall reap from the Spirit eternal life. 
The Christian who is preoccupied with the things of God rather than the fleshly things of the world will produce the fruit of the Spirit. We see those fruits right after that nasty listed in chapter 5. We see it in chapter 5, 22 to 23. To sow to the Spirit, which is Paul's talking about now, to sow to the Spirit is the same as to walk by the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 16, to be led by the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 18, and to keep in step with the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 25. We sow to the Spirit when we do what the Spirit empowers and guides us to do, when we keep our lives in step with the Spirit. And Paul says here very plainly that the product of sowing to the Spirit is what? Eternal life. It is not that only Spirit-filled believers go to heaven. Every believer goes to heaven because every believer is forever a child of God and a citizen of the kingdom. So he's not saying that, look, some believers who are more spiritual and walk with the Spirit better, you know, they're the ones that are going to get eternal life, while the other believers who, you know, screw around and mess around with the flesh, they're not going to get it. He's not teaching that. You need to understand the meaning of eternal life right here. Throughout Scripture, eternal life refers primarily, primarily to quality, not duration. What comes to our mind when we think of eternal life? Duration, right? We think, well, it's life for all eternity. Well, very often in Scripture, that's not what's being referred to. It is the quality of eternal life. It is the quality of the life of the one who possesses eternal life. And that is the exact meaning here. But he was talking about how you can degenerate your life through sowing to the flesh. Now he's saying you can increase the quality of your Christian life by sowing to the Spirit. This is what he's saying. Tit for tat, right? Makes sense. The believer begins by participating in eternal life the moment he trusts in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. No sin in a believer's life can separate him from eternal life. But any sin in his life corrupts his enjoyment of that eternal life. That's the difference. MacArthur again, and this is what he says here, is just daggers. He says, this is why some Christians are among the most miserable, unhappy, and wretched of people. Christians, a persistently sinning believer can sometimes be more miserable than an unbeliever simply because his sin is in constant conflict with his new nature in Christ. He's essentially saying that if you have a, a genuine believer who is prone to and constantly giving themselves over to their flesh and they're always sowing in the flesh, there is a serious battle waging within this person between their new nature and the spirit and their flesh, which makes them the most miserable people to be around, the most wretched of people, he says. You know, we, we, we tend to say that there's some Christians out there who seemingly have been baptized in prune juice. Right? They're just, man, they're just nasty and bitter. That's probably who he's talking about. Why is it that they're nasty and bitter? Probably because they have a lot of sin in their life. And the conflict and the war within them is so great, it just distracts them and discourages them, and it, it makes them angry and mad and accusatory towards others, and they blame shift and do all this stuff. It's because they have a lot of sin in their life. Think about that, right? If you're sowing to the Spirit, you're going to have the fruits of the Spirit. You're going to be joyful and peaceful, and you're going to have all the fruits of the Spirit listed in the previous chapter. You're not going to be baptized in prune juice. You'll be baptized in regular water. The believer who sows to his flesh does not lose the Spirit, nor does he or she lose eternal life. 
but he or she loses the fruit of the Spirit, which degenerates the quality of his or her life. That believer who, who caves to temptation and gives their self over to the flesh all the time and is always sowing to the flesh in word and deed or however, they basically kiss goodbye love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and, of course, self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. Those things go bye-bye. And guess what else that sinning Christian loses? They lose the joy of their salvation, which corrupts their enjoyment of eternal life. If you've ever gotten to a point in your life where eternal life just doesn't really, you know, float your boat or really get you excited or fill you with a sense of joy and happiness, and if you get yourself to a point like that, you need to check yourself to see if you've got a lot of sin in your life. Because fleshly corruption, it degenerates the quality of your you know, the experiential quality of eternal life. Eternal life just becomes like anything else if you've got a lot of sin in your life. You don't care. And it's, it's possible to become this way even as a Christian. It doesn't seem like it could happen, but it can. Paul's writing to Christians. You, you lose the joy of your salvation. You essentially become like King David, who sowed to his flesh in some pretty crazy sinful ways, right? He was complacent, 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 2. He uh, committed adultery, 2 Samuel 11, 4. He committed conspiracy to commit murder, 2 Samuel eleven fifteen. He committed murder, 2 Samuel eleven seventeen. He did a census, which was highly sinful, 2 Samuel 24, 1 to 10. David was a man after God's own heart, but he also became a man after his own flesh at times, just as all believers do. And when he did this, he got to a point where he began to realize what was going on, and he cried out to God. And what did he say to God? He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit, Psalm 51, 12. Isn't that amazing that the first thing to go when he was sowing to his flesh was the joy of his salvation, the joy of his salvation gone. Eh, salvation, salvation, who cares? That's what happens. And yet the believer who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In other words, the quality of his or her life will be very high because they will have the fruit of the Spirit and they will have the joy of their salvation. I am not turning into a Pentecostal prosperity preacher right now saying your life is going to be perfect. I'm not even talking about what you'll get. I'm just talking about you will have the fruit of the Spirit and you will have the joy of your salvation, which really at the end of the day is all you need. It's all you need and that's what you will have if you sow to the Spirit. But you'll have the opposite if you sow to the flesh. The opposite. It degenerates. It goes down. Number three, the encouragement. Verse 9, Paul says, Nextly, uh, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Paul's going back to the farming metaphor language here, metaphorical language here again. He encourages believers who sow to the Spirit 
right? That's who he's talking to now. Those who sow to the Spirit, he's telling them to be patient like a farmer who waits for due season, right? The time of year where his crops are ready to go and he, and he calls for the reapers to come in and reap the wheat and all that. That's what he's encouraging them to do. You who sow to the Spirit, you be patient because in due time, you're going to reap a harvest. Be patient. I love how he admonishes them here. He says, do not grow weary of doing good and do not give up right? He's literally saying, don't grow weary of doing good and do not give up because in due season you will reap. What will the person reap if they do not give up and hang in there? They'll reap all the benefits that come from doing good things. Whatever good you invest, you will reap good benefits later on, a crop of goodness later on. That's what he's saying. Now, Paul said something very similar to the Corinthians a little bit later on. He told them to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's really kind of the same thing, just worded differently. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And I'll tell you what, this, this verse here and this third point, is, it's such an encouragement, especially to somebody like me who's been toiling in ministry for years, and some of you have been toiling in ministry. It's a great encouragement. It's a great reminder because I think it's very easy for me and for the rest of us in many ways just to grow weary, right? You kind of you grow weary in ministry. You, you're, you're trying to do a lot of good, as much good as you can at times, and, and sometimes it just doesn't seem to pay off or, or whatever it is. You don't see much to reap there, and, and after a while, you can just, man, I just why am I doing this? Why, why am I preaching every week and, and going through the stress of this or whatever it is? You know, now it's, I'm, I'm turning into a me show, but you understand what I'm saying, right? You do a lot of good and maybe you don't see much fruit and you can say, eh, you can kind of grow weary. And, and you don't say to yourself, well, I think I'll just switch to doing a lot of bad. Uh, no Christian does that, but sometimes they can just say, well, I'll just do good at my house instead of going down to that building at 1209B, McHenry. It's easy to get discouraged in ministry. It's easy to get discouraged in life when you do a lot of good, right? You know, you're doing good all the time and sowing to the Spirit and serving in ministry or serving in your community, in your neighborhood or whatever, and when your season is extra long and you, you can't find much to reap there, it doesn't seem like there's much crop to deal with. You look and it's like, it's still dirt, Lord. I don't see any seedlings or saplings popping up. I think I'm done. Who hasn't felt like that? I do about every six weeks. That's why I take a break off from Sunday and just try to spend time with the Lord and whatever. And it's not that you people cause this in me. I think it's even a work of my own flesh. My flesh doesn't want to do good. It wants to be lazy and sit around and cater to itself. But it's easy, I think, to grow weary from doing good. And that just makes no sense. Why would you get tired of doing good? Because of our flesh. Right? I like what MacArthur said here. I'm just going to be, it's like he wrote the sermon. He says, after years of faithful, unselfish service to the Lord, a believer may have experienced little obvious evidence of the Lord's blessing. Like Paul, he may have more problems, frustrations, and persecution at the end of his life than he had when he was a new believer. <laughs> but when a believer is genuinely and persistently faithful in doing good, he has God's assurance that in due time he shall reap. Mm. 
Now, I tell you, the, the context of this passage makes this encouragement and reminder all the more special. It is about the restoration of sinning brothers and sisters and what happens if they refuse to repent, right? That's the context. Paul is encouraging the spiritual believer who seeks to gently restore a sinning brother or sister not to lose heart and not to give up if they get rejected by that sinning brother or sister. Keep, he's saying, keep doing gospel good toward that sinning brother or sister as much as you can and trust that God will bring in a harvest over time. But you got to be patient and keep doing it. And I tell you what, when we get rejected, the last thing we want to do is keep going in that. And if you get rejected a few more times, you really don't want to help that person. You really don't want to show them any goodness. You don't want to be good to them. You want to be the opposite of good to them. All right, it's time for them to reap what they've been sowing. <laughs> right? This is what happens. This, this is what he's doing. He's encouraging us that, that, that at times have to go and gently restore a sinning brother. He's saying, look, if they spit in your face, take it on the chin and continue to do gospel good toward them. Don't give up. And of course, the context is a sinning brother or sister. It's not an outsider. I would say keep doing good toward the outsider, but it's a little different. I think really what he's saying is don't give up on our brothers and sisters, even when they go wayward and even when they, they, they say to you, it's not my fault, it's everyone else's fault, when they reject your gentle correction. He's saying don't give up. But you know what else he's saying? Hey, to you that needs to repent, you're going to reap what you're sowing. There's a double warning there, isn't there? There's the warning to us not to give up as we gently correct, but there's a warning to the recipient to repent because if not, they are going to reap what they've been sowing. If they've given themselves over to legalism or antinomianism or any other kind of sin, blaming everyone, whatever the subject is, whatever the sin is, they're going to reap the consequences. And one of the consequences is a dismal Christian life if they're a Christian. Because they've got all that guilt and shame in them. They know they're wrong. That's why you keep showing them gospel good. You kill them with kindness. And that is not an easy thing to do. That's why I got Brother Bruce as a backup. I need the nice guy. And he comes in and I shut up. Makes total sense in context. He's saying, you know what? Man, if you, if, you, if you get it turned around on you by a sinning brother or sister, you just keep doing gospel good toward them. You keep up the gentle correction. And you know what? You get other spiritual brothers and sisters involved if you need to, right? That's the Matthew 18 text that we looked at last week. And he's saying you, you keep following it through as best you can, and you be patient. And I'm telling you, in due season, you will reap. It almost gives us the idea that that sinning brother or sister, at some point, God is going to crack them and that they're going to come to their senses and repent and get restored back to the body or wherever it is they left or whatever it is, whatever damage they caused. Then we can start to bear that burden with them. I pray that this happens because we've had quite a few people leave the church for sinful reasons and I pray that this happens with those who have left for those reasons. And I pray that we are equally ready to receive them and to love them as best we can and, and to help them bear the burden, which again is not something that my flesh wants to do, but the Spirit wants to do it in me and I need to submit to the Spirit, not so to the flesh. This is what we want. I even put it in your bulletin today to be praying for people who have left the church, especially those who 
have left for sinful reasons. Who knows what God can do there? It says here we can reap, so the possibility of gaining them back in a right mind and all that is, is there. Let's move to our fourth and final E, the example, verse 10. Paul says next, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. After encouraging the Galatians not to grow weary from doing good and to be patient as they continue on in their ministry of reconciliation, Paul sets an example for them. They are to do good to everyone. That's the example. Who are we to aim our good at? Well, firstly, to everyone. The Greek word for everyone is pas, and guess what it means? Everyone. Doesn't mean anything special, anything secret. Pas, P-A-S, means everyone, all. We are to do good to everyone as we have opportunities to do that. But I think really who Paul was referring to here is less general and more specific. And I think who he's really talking about here is unbelievers. Because he talks about make sure you do a lot of good to the household of faith, which is the church. Right before that, he says to everyone. Obviously, he's talking about unbeliever and believer. Follow it logically. Our last MacArthur quote, and I think this one's massively important. He says, one of the best ways to thwart criticism of Christianity is for Christians to live out this verse and to do good to unbelievers. Loving concern will do more to win a person to Christ than the most carefully articulated argument. The heart of every Christian testimony should be kindness. Wow. That's convicting to think that, that, that our Christian disposition and attitude should always be, and our testimony should always be kindness, and that to, to show love and mercy and concern and care and good toward those who are outside of the fold is, that's more winsome than the, the cleverest of spiritual arguments. And when, when you think of everyone here, especially unbelievers, he's, he, I don't know if he had any specific in mind, but I certainly do, and I'm thinking of just People today in our culture, you know, like homosexuals, who we tend to demonize, transsexuals, who we demonize, um, non-binary, we demonize, the socialist, we demonize, Democrats, we demonize, Republicans, we demonize, presidents, we demonize, whether they don't know where they're at or they have terrible hair and are narcissistic. I just did the opposite of the sermon. I mean, seriously, pass everyone, anyone and everyone who we think is outside of the fold. The wokesters that we've been studying about on Monday nights, you got to admit that in your flesh, the, the first inclination of your flesh here, when we start naming identities and lifestyles, it, it's, it's not to show them good, is it? Especially in this political climate, which is the worst political climate in American history, by far. And if we're going to be honest, we have to date that back about five years. That's when it started with Trump. Because he couldn't shut his mouth. 
and stay off Twitter because his skin's a millimeter thick. Seriously. I'm not saying that things were much better before him. I'm just saying that the division is unlike anything I've ever seen now. I don't even know if we can recover from it. I don't. I, I see a civil war coming. People just don't want to be nice. They don't want to be kind. And, and, and my flesh, to be very honest with you, is, is right there with them at times. I don't want to be very nice to what I see. I don't want to be good toward it. But good is winsome. Hostility is not. Hostility is not. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially unbelievers. Especially those who live lifestyles that are just make absolutely no sense to us. Or their voting record makes no sense to us. Whatever it is. Now, doing good to unbelievers is insanely important. I mean, Paul writes about it here. Everyone pass, but there's a little clause here. It is even more important for us to do good to those who are of the household of faith, our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is where we should do the most good is toward one another. You know, it's, it's not that uh, we mistreat those who are on the outside because we have to, you know, treat people on the inside a special way. I, I think God gives us plenty of time and resource to love everyone pretty well. But, man, the strong emphasis here is on those in the church, especially those who belong to the household. In fact, this is the first test of our love for God right? We say we love God. We show forth. We, we're tested in Scripture, and we show forth whether we love God or not by how we love other believers. Did you know that? You guys know that? Do you understand that? We don't show our love for God by how well we love unbelievers. We show our love for God by how well we love His other children, other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is 1 John 4.20. That's kind of the ultimate test. In that text, John says, you know, you say you love God, but you hate your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You're a liar. You don't love God. You can't have hate in your heart toward a brother or sister and somehow simultaneously love God. The way you love your brothers and sisters is tied to how you love God. I've seen this in so many marriages where you've got two Christians and they're warring and fighting and you know, and they, they, they will boast about their relationship with the Lord and, and all that, but, you know, it's pure daggers toward one another, and it's like, I just have to stop them and say, you don't love Christ. Well, yes, I do. If it weren't for Christ, I wouldn't even be in this marriage any longer, you know? No, you don't love Christ because your love for Christ is manifested in your love for your husband or wife. If you, if you don't love if you don't love horizontally, don't lie to yourself and say you've got something strong on the vertical. You don't. We are to love each other by doing as much good as we can for each other. And when we do this, everyone will know that we are Jesus' disciples. John 13, 35. 
closing. If we think that God doesn't take our sin seriously and that the whole sowing and reaping thing doesn't apply to us, we are essentially deceived and we are mocking God. As I said earlier, the cross demonstrates how seriously God takes sin. He crushed His only begotten Son on the cross like a grape because of sin. Don't ever, ever let your flesh or the enemy or anyone ever tell you that God doesn't take sin seriously. He does. And the cross is a perpetual, eternal reminder of how seriously God takes sin. If we are God's children, if God takes sin seriously and we are His children, then we should take sin very seriously. I don't think we'll ever take it as seriously as He does, but that's what we aim for. We need to take it very, very seriously. And a great reminder of the seriousness of sin is sowing and reaping, isn't it? Don't be deceived and mock God by thinking that you're not going to reap what you sow. You will. You will reap what you sow. You don't get a free pass. You don't get carte blanche by being in Christ. You will never be judged and cast into hell. That'll never happen. But God disciplines those whom He loves. And He will discipline His child. He will Allow them and make it, uh, things turn out in such a way that you will reap what you've been sowing at some point. And I think that's where the disconnect is. Sometimes we don't take sin seriously as Christians because there's no immediate impact of it, right? You know, I, well, you know, whoop-dee-doo, I've been cussing like a sailor lately. I haven't really felt anything about that. I mean, right, it seems like there's a delayed discipline or something. And so that causes us to take sin less serious. But just know that you're going to reap what you're sowing. It's coming. You're going to reap a whirlwind at some point. And in this text, in this context, the whirlwind that you reap is a very, very low experiential quality of the Christian life. Your Christian life is meant to be full of joy, peace, and hope, but the more you sow to your flesh, you diminish its quality you cause that. You want to be one of those believers who walks around like they've been baptized in prune juice, who's just always nasty? That's what happens. Where the joy of your salvation is fleeting and gone. You know, they're always talking about how the Christian has this joy that can never go away. There is a way to destroy your joy. Just keep sowing to your flesh. You will destroy your joy. You will be like David who finally cried out, return to me the joy of your salvation. That was the thing that bugged him most. He lost a baby in the situation. He lost a mighty man. It was because of him that that mighty man died. But, I mean, there was a lot. His kingdom became divided later on. But the thing that hurt him the most was the loss of the joy of his salvation. That's precious. That's precious. Maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, I know I'm a Christian. I don't have any doubt about that. 
but I haven't been very joyful. I haven't had much peace. I just My life has been a total mess. The first thing you need to do is check yourself. Are you sowing to your flesh? Are you doing things with a fiancé you ought not be doing? Are you doing things with a boyfriend, a girlfriend? Are you living one kind of life at work and another kind of life at home and, and then a, a, another type of life at church? How many lives, lives are you juggling? We've had people who have left this church who, who are juggling different lives. And when, when, when those lives all came together, it didn't work out and they left. Is that you? This truth and reality of sowing and reaping, it escapes no one. Jesus was innocent and it didn't escape him because he literally did reap the consequence in an ultimate sense of our sin on the cross. But that doesn't mean that we can sin all we like. That's antinomianism. If we sow to the flesh for justification or sinful pleasure, we will reap corruption. If we are a believer, the quality of our Christian life will degenerate, going from better to worse, and we will lose the joy of our salvation. The preciousness of eternal life begins to fade. If we are an unbeliever, <laughs> we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.21, the person who's outside of Christ is in a total dire straits, in a dire situation. They're, they don't have their sins forgiven. They don't have the discipline of God coming to them as a loving father to his child. They don't have any of that. The ultimate consequence, the corruption that they reap is a forfeiture of the kingdom of God. They don't go to heaven. They go down below. All the more reason to repent and put your trust in Christ. At least then you get a, a loving father who lovingly disciplines his children when they sow to their flesh. But outside of Christ, you have none of that. You just have hell. Oh, dear friend, repent and trust in Christ. And yet if we sow to the Spirit, we will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The quality of our Christian life will be high because we are going to have the fruit of the Spirit. Again, listen to these fruits that you have when you sow to the Spirit. Tell me, there's no way that you could argue against me and tell me that the quality of that believer's life, the one who sows to the Spirit, is not going to be high because listen to what's in their life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And not only that, that believer who sows to the Spirit will have what David missed the most when he was backsliding, the joy of his salvation. You will have the joy of your salvation once again. If we continue to sow to the Spirit by doing good and we refuse to grow weary and give up in due season, we will reap a harvest. The good that we have done, it will pay off. Be patient. Seize every opportunity to do good to everyone. People that you wouldn't even normally do good to. Do a lot of good to them. To unbelievers and especially to believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. This family is the meaning of Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Paul's first 
final warning.